I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Studio Ghibli Collection, Part 1, Hayao Miyazaki. This episode comes at the end of an unexpected marathon of every single one of the 23 films Studio Ghibli has put out to date. Originally, it began as just me buying up a bunch of now-deleted UK Blu-rays, upgrading our old DVDs, but then we found that all the rest of them were on Netflix. So, Sharon and I set out to watch each of the Ghibli films that we had never seen in chronological order, followed by a rewatch of all the ones we had seen in glorious 1080p. This was combined with watching a lot of YouTube think pieces to help us to understand the creative decisions, the differences between direction of the directors who aren't Hayao Miyazaki, the knock-on effect of the chronology and its history, and after watching a piece about how the American language versions of Ghibli films also have a tendency to patch in additional music to fill silences because Westerners are less comfortable with silence, we elected to watch every single one of these in the original Japanese language. Which gleaned mixed results. Some films were opened up in a way that they had never been before, but for some of our favourites we felt an absence or a different tone that was less appealing. If you listen back to our full show on Kiki's Delivery Service, you'll hear how the 1998 Disney cut of that was the one that many grew up with on VHS and DVD, but as of 2010 was reconfigured to be closer to the original, giving no option on the Blu-ray to hear the one with the more improvised dialogue from the late great Phil Hartman, or the American songs exclusive to that version. It's just gone. 
It's not in HD. I had to make my own, whereby I took the audio from the DVD and laid it underneath the 1080p Blu-ray transfer. It worked flawlessly, and I wish I could give every one of you that version. In some cases, we will be breezing over the film in short order because we can see the potential for a full main event show. Spirited Away is a fine example of this. That remains my favorite, and we will definitely be doing a Spirited Away show, so we will barely be talking about that in this. However, in others, this will probably be the only time you'll hear us talk about giant raccoon balls. Personally, I am elated that we had this opportunity because it meant that we had a structured reason as well as the means to seek out this body of work and fill in those gaps. Frankly, Studio Ghibli should remain on Netflix for all time as a service to humankind. I know they won't and that many of you won't be able to access the archive right now depending on where and when you are. But luckily, the internet culture that sprang up around anime made it a publicly shared art form, so even if there are no official channels, there are other places you can go that don't entail selling a kidney to buy 23 sometimes hard-to-find-inexpensive Blu-rays. So this episode is brought to you by Crunchyroll. Hayo has, over the years, attempted repeatedly to retire only to keep coming back for more as the question mark over what Ghibli will be after he finally departs was always looming. We included his first two feature films prior to forming Studio Ghibli with his colleagues Toshio Suzuki, Yasuyoshi Tokuma, and Isayo Takahata. The first of these films was Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro, and the second was Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind, which many people may just assume is Ghibli. It predated it, but utilized many of the animators who moved on to their first actual feature, Castle in the Sky. As well as this, we took in the output of Studio Ponok, formed by Ghibli animators in 2015 during one of Hayao's many retirements, as a means of continuing this legacy without the weight and control and sheer expectations of the brand name Studio Ghibli. Nine of the 23 films were directed by Hayao Miyazaki, five by his friend and co-finder Isayao Takahata, three by his son Goro Miyazaki, two by Hiromasa Yonobayashi, who went on to form Studio Ponok, three by Ghibli animators Tomomi Mochizushi, who made Ocean Waves, Yoshifuma Kondo, who made Whisper of the Heart, and Hiroki Marita, who made The Cat Returns. And The Red Turtle, for the first time ever, was by Dutch director Michael Dudok de Witt. They let in someone who wasn't of Studio Ghibli at all. This illustrates the lengths they would go to with Hayao Miyazaki not at the helm. Some of these were attempts to fill the shadow of the old man, and it always shows. 
As we watched through, we noted down recurring motifs, thematic commonalities, visual and emotional constants, and quirks particular to this studio. The first is the music of Joe Hisaishi, who does not score every film, but has been around since before the beginning and appears to act like the John Williams to Hayao's Steven Spielberg, providing absolutely key emotional engagement for the listener with masterful piano and otherworldly musings. He's the Carter Burwell of Studio Ghibli as well. of Joe throughout the episodes in this series that we will be publishing throughout the year. Okay, so the repeating motifs. Number one, plucky but cautious female protagonists. Sharon, you want to weigh in on this one? Um, very rarely <laughs> is it like... too large for me to get specific at the moment. Very rarely is it... Uh, here is a Studio Ghibli film, and here is a young boy who's going to be our star. It's almost always a young girl. Yeah. If there is a boy, they're in a support role. And even Ashitaka being the lead character in uh, Princess Mononoke is very much setting out to be a support role. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the fact that the film is called Princess Mononoke and mm -hmm. not Prince Ashitaka is quite significant. Yeah. It's not about him. He does a lot of the stuff that drives the plot forward, but the story is not about him and the effect on him of, of the event. This must have been done in essays before, but the equivalent of the Disney princess would be the Ghibli girl. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, it, it's, it, it falls under the category of things like your Alice in Wonderland mm. or um, not really like your Cinderella's or your Beauty and the Beasts because the, the heroines in Ghibli are very rarely prizes or trophies to be passed from pillar to post and eventually work a way for it to be good for them too. Mm. Not your Jasmines, because I am not a prize to be won. Well, indeed. But it took <clears throat> Disney until 1991 to say anything about that. Yes. <laughs> when Ghibli had been making films about uh, plucky young girls for quite a while by that point. Indeed, yeah. Uh, Willow noticed, and they were absolutely on the money, Repeatedly, the girl is in warm red colours, and the boy is in cool blue colours. They said uh, it was like uh, summer and winter. Spring and winter. Spring and winter. Specifically. If you look at uh, Chihiro's uh, outfit in Spirited Away, that incredibly famous poster of her there, that's the, that's the pinkish red. Mm. It is in almost every film on the girl who's going to be either the passionate heart or the romantic lead. Mm, yeah, it's. I think the reason it's spring rather than summer, summer tends to be more your, your bright yellows <clears> and <throat> yeah. the more vivid colours. The pinks tend to be, they're not... Cherry blossoms. They're not quite cherry blossom mm. pink because that's very pastel and pale. Princess Kaguya wears but it's, that. Yeah, it's usually sort of some, it's a range from cherry blossom pink up to a very slightly muted fuchsia, but it's it's a subtle colour rather than being very vivid and bright. It's almost coral. 
Yeah, yeah, Coral turns up from time to time. Like I said, it's it's a range, but specifically, it's not as simple as pink for girls, blue for boys, because mm. there are frequently occasions when that colour scheme is inverted. Yeah. It's more to do with pink being the warm, energising, uh, the, the visual communication the of the, the heart, like you said, and then the blue being the cool, logic, practical. The head? Yeah. I wonder why I like Ghibli. <laughs> but it's it's more of a sort of a yin-yang thing rather than a, a boy-girl thing. Yeah, there, no, are, that, there are connotations of masculine and feminine, but it's not as simple as... And they're surrounded by people who don't wear the same colour coding. Absolutely, yeah. But they're specifically singled out as the ones you should keep your attention yeah, on. Yeah, and it's... it's Often, Again, not always, but... Yeah, and it's often utilised in terms of the absence of those colours being notable. So, again, going back to Chihiro in Spirited Away, pink is not her her natural colour. That is not what she wears when she's choosing her own things. <clears throat> she clothes herself in a uniform that is not hers that is that colour. Mm. Beautiful, peaceful, green nature. Still mirror lakes, blue skies, white clouds, repeated motifs of this over and over again. There's another point I've got about nature coming up, but <clears throat> it feels like Miyazaki in particular is in love with nature and in awe of nature, but holds it in a specific reverence, like worship rather than um, jealousy. Yes, although it is possible for those two to go together. But I think there's, in in particular... Well, in all states, he's trying to share it with us and get us to feel the same reverence. But he also gives us a range of takes on nature. So you've got, and I I, I know... um, Raccoon Bulls. Is only yesterday him? Only yesterday, yeah, only yesterday is his Taka- friend Takahata. Takahata. Um, but there's, there is a, a variation of... It's not just that nature is this lovely pastoral backdrop for mankind to exist within and, and take control of. There are... Oh, it's never take control of. That's no, 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 discouraged. That's, but that's what I mean. It's like often when people <clears> look at... <throat> again, I don't want to continually compare him to Disney, but when people look at Disney countrysides, they're often just... That they're a, they're a back scene for the things to happen in front of, but they're a, got, a character in Ghibli. Absolutely, and you've got a range of nature red in tooth and claw, but not something for humans to be afraid of and run away from. Just stay at a respectful distance Respect, yeah. from and observe and find a way to interact with around the edges, or it's. Uh, a, a version of nature that humans have to have some say in if it's going to be a certain way, but also that they have to be respectful of it and not completely take it over with their own intentions. There are always... He doesn't have quite the the loathing for the industrial that, say, for example, Tolkien seemed to have... Because he's too fascinated by engines. Well, yeah, absolutely. He's in conflict because he loves engines, but he can understand what they're doing to the environment. Absolutely, but he definitely feels that technology and industry needs to be curtailed and should never be allowed to run rampant. So kind of like James Cameron's war. War is terrible. We must evolve beyond it. Look at that military hardware, boys. Come on. That's a little bit more blunt, but... (laughs) But yeah. He's like the subtle James Cameron. (laughs) Yeah.
There's also a deeply elemental uh, side of the films beyond, like if the green is always nature, it's always earth, it's always positive, there's almost no examples of the greenery being negative mm. and toxic. Yeah. Uh, and the fire looks more fiery, and like it's the idea of fire. I've, I've seen that uh, people say anime food looks better than real food because it's the idea of the food, almost impressionistic, rather than trying to directly show you exactly what an egg looks like. This is the most delicious egg you will ever see. But likewise, the fire is the most warming and fascinating, captivating version of fire you will ever see. In the case of Howl's Moving Castle, it's actually friendly. <laughs> yeah, unless it's used for destruction, in which case it's a thing of terror. Yeah, yeah. But always when things become destructive and out of control, they they start to lose their personalization. They become something that is no mm. longer reachable by the characters. Yeah. Uh, and the water similarly has, it's so you've got fire, water throughout the films, and the water always has this beauty and this rush to it. And it has a power behind it. Whenever like water charges in somewhere it affects everything around it and similarly the wind and the air movements throughout Ghibli ruffling the hair and the clothes and the drapery it, he makes you feel like wind is definitely there within the space he's animating which seems like well obviously but if you look at especially CG animation from the early 2000s there is no acknowledgement that air exists or that wind currents move. Everyone's hair is like plasticine and it stays manacled to their heads. Mm. Very occasionally you will get a scene that is specifically referencing the fact that wind is flowing by, mm. Pocahontas, uh, and then you see the effects of it, but it's never something that's just sort of there in the background, yeah. or very rarely. Speaking of engines, old prototype late 1930s airplanes and charming 1940s European cars. Whenever he shows Japanese cars, it's like, yeah, yeah, they look like electric shavers, moving on. But the cars he loves are like little French thingies. We watched a really good video about how he engineers... Because his father worked in aviation, and so he's always been fascinated by the, the workings of these flying machines, that if you hold up a model of, a, of an airplane and you sort of zoom it around in the sky, that is often how airplanes are animated because the person doing the animation is looking at the airplane in their hand. Miyazaki animates his aircraft and there are loads of different like flying fortresses and zeppelins and friggin' Flying bicycles, fl flying cars. What's the uh, word? Dirigibles and just all kinds of, of things that fly and wondrous devices. But they are animated broomsticks. from... Broomsticks. Broomsticks. They are animated from the inside so they have life and movement. 
and you can see little plates moving as, you know, as, as the forces work within them. So rather than it being a model that you're observing, it's like the thing is alive and a character. Yeah, there's, there's an attitude towards technology sometimes which in, in everyday life as well as in film and animation and the, by the way what I'm about to say there is nothing wrong with, with looking and viewing technology this way <clears throat> some people do some people don't but it's a, a tone of I don't need to know how it works I just, I just need, need to, to know, know that though, it yeah. works and what it does so this is where you get your machines that are all everything's all sealed in cars are becoming more and more uh, that you, you can't get to them to do anything with the inner workings because it's all sealed in and most of it's controlled by computers of some description. And if you want anything repairing, you have to take it to somebody who, who officially knows how to take it apart and put it back together again. What Miyazaki appears to be a big fan of is the opposite of that, where it, it's not necessarily that he feels the need to know how things work or feels that everybody should know how things work, but he does seem to think that we should have the opportunity to observe it working, see the cogs, see how things inter interlace and intersect with... Uh, each other and how this handle makes this wing flap and stuff like that so that it's it's more of a again if you if you perceive these machines as characters in their own right it's representative of if we're going to get to know a person to know how they tick we need to we need to see what's going on inside them not necessarily know how that all works, but at least be able to observe it rather than simply looking at their external behaviour and making assumptions based on that. <clears throat> it's not dissimilar to the steampunk aesthetic as well. There's a reason why there's these recurring airships and gears and pistons and windmills and dials in steampunk. The people that like that kind of thing like to know that machines are working for a reason. They aren't the kind of, look, I don't need to know how it works, I just need to know it's there. Yeah. It's very much uh, a fascination with the movement and craft mm. behind yeah. it. I'd, I'd say the element of... <clears throat> you can break steampunk up into various different types, and I would say the, the facet that he is particularly interested in is like the clockwork punk. because Cloud punk? It, is that... The term? I don't know if I've I, I don't know if I've heard it before, but it it applies to Miyazaki. Yeah. Cloud punk. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But specifically, while there is machinery involved, he doesn't seem to be massively interested in like you. Oh, it's a video game. Not interested in, but he he seems to be. That is just cyberpunk. Mm. That is just cyberpunk. Yes, it is. Okay, let's pretend that video game doesn't have that name, which does not apply. Mm. There aren't any clouds. It's just friggin' Neo Tokyo again. And uh, LA in Blade Runner. Continue, sorry. So he's not pushing the coal-fired steampunk image, which is, is tied in with the pollution and the industry that he seems to be not wildly keen on. It's more the kind of steampunky technology that is operated either by water or by a person turning a handle or pedalling a, a, something to give it power. The, the, the power sometimes comes from magic, um, which might be a bit hand-wavy, but it, it does... <coughs> seem to suggest a desire for the energy that drives us forward in our development and improvement to be non-intrusive and polluting and, and have the potential to mess up 
the earth. Yeah. And Diesel Punk is right out. He no interest in that whatsoever. Oh, he'll feature Diesel Punk, but yeah, it will but be shown be in a negative light. Yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. And like if if anything's ever belching black clouds into the uh, air, that's that's the negative light. Yeah, yeah. But it also, he doesn't have this over-romanticised idea of everything's got to be done by hand. Mm. When he shows really old-fashioned environments where everybody has to do things manually, they are portrayed as exhausting and time-consuming and not necessarily idealised. Because of the repeated 40s and 30s motifs, which were, for, you know, the, the precursors of his childhood, uh, we effectively keep getting a vision of the Miyazaki-verse, a version of the world where either World War II didn't happen or it happened differently and technology went in a slightly different way and we're just on the cusp of it like being, you know, kind of a, a different version of our world. Mm. So Kiki's Delivery Service looks like it does actually take place in the same vicinity as Castle in the Sky, even though when you look into the history of that and Nausicaa, they actually went in completely different directions. The aesthetic has those commonalities. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> Other things that you'll keep seeing, plucky little girls that we mentioned before, scrambling around, falling over, but immediately getting back up again. There's a motion to that and it just seems to happen at least once per film of just a girl going, oh, shit, and then getting back up and, and, and just carrying on scrambling, never breaking their motion. Mm. It's a wonderfully compelling way of keeping you with a protagonist. Absolutely. And it, it signifies <clears throat> the idea that your inner self might be racing faster than your body can keep up with. Yeah. As effectively your emotions are are, are kind of over overflowing at this point, and you're being compelled towards something you don't have control over. Indeed, which I think is also often why these protagonists are very young, even if they're not actively children. They're usually very young teenagers, mm. because when you are that age, the what your brain and your imagination are trying to accomplish often goes way beyond what your physicality, in the case of a child who is physically small, or in the case of a teenager who is reaching the point where they're going to have more impact on the world, but they're not quite there yet, is is sort of overreaching where their, their position in life allows them. You will see working extremely hard as a positive... We'll be talking about this as it goes, but there is a work ethic in Japan that is actually kind of deadly. I say kind of, actually deadly in some capacities. It has claimed many lives, and that effectively entails working to exhaustion. But in Ghibli movies, a lot of the time you'll find someone who's not necessarily lazy, but they will find a purpose and a momentum in life by working their ass off in service of others. Mm, yeah, but I think the difference in the way it's portrayed in the Ghibli films is that that person is never expected to be doing that 24-7. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Yubaba's pretty... Yeah, like, you know, you should either be working or sleeping. Work or sleep. But Yubaba is yeah, massively but a villain. Yeah, not presented as a positive. I know, I know. It, doing, doing But that's effectively and... Miyazaki going... Maybe this is a bad idea. Yeah. Doing the work and being willing to do the work is is the positive, but framing it so that you do actually get opportunities to rest and seek the thing that you are seeking beyond the work is also important. Mm. Sick people in bed. There are 
repeated. It's like it's almost always a woman, and it's it's frequently a mother figure who is in bed, and it's rarely a case of horrible, stressful, messy, realistic, just traumatizing pain. It's more. It's almost beatific、mm. in that they're they're taking the pain of whatever illness is slowly killing them or, or, or debilitating them, and they're just sort of serene. Around the people who are very concerned for them, it's it's exposing us to something that is very frightening in a way that almost prepares us. It is a sick parent viewed through the eyes of a child who has had the worst aspects of this hidden from them for their sake. We'll talk about that for the individual films. It's it's very present in.、Uh, I would say this actually goes back to. Like nineteenth-century children's literature,、um, where there would be, as you said, mothers or cousins, or but always a, an older girl or woman who was admired for her godliness and and, like you said, saintliness、mm. in the face of whatever illness it was that was upon them. Cousin Helen in What Katie Did by Susan Coolidge, or Beth in Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. But this was back in the day before、uh, you would go if you had a long-term illness, you would go to hospital, because that's not what hospitals did. Hospitals were emergency places.、Mm. You went to get fixed in the immediate term. If you had something long-term, you would probably go home、mm. and be looked after and cared for at home. Assuming, of course, that you were wealthy. If you were poor, you wouldn't be looked after at all.、Mm. There's a, a sort of an overlap. With hospitals in this, in that occasionally will be presented a what they call a sanatorium,、mm. which is more like、um, I suppose that the the framework of it is more like we would now think of a rehab centre,、yeah. um, not necessarily rehab for drugs and alcohol, although it's the same framework, but somewhere that you would go where effectively they're giving you somewhere to live and a bed. But not necessarily treatment. Your treatment is is the lifestyle you are afforded, wherein you do not have to work extremely hard. You have yes, you're contributing to the community that you're living in. But it's rest. But because it's communal, there are lots of、yeah. people to do that work. So it's not this sense of you personally have to work your fingers to the bone so that your children can eat.、Mm. It's it's about an environment where your basic needs are being met, so that you're slightly beyond. Basic needs have an opportunity to recover. This made me think of a concept from one of my recent audiobooks, Stone Spring Maidens, which is a portal fantasy interspecies lesbian romance between a human girl and an elf from a matriarchal, tech-driven crystal punk civilization. Listening to them as they each go through their soma oneros has changed the way I do things. Soma. Um. I'm not sure what the right concept for it would be in your language. Is it healing? Not exactly, and I've heard it described as a healing journey, and that just feels patronising. But also, it's not a fight exactly. It's an existence spent with an awareness of one's own pain. That's why I don't like to use the word healing, because. Many on this path reach the end in a worse state than they were at the beginning. But the important thing is that this pain is recognised, 
internally and externally and a measure of respect that might be the word is afforded to someone going through it would would someone on arrows cover grief grieving definitely seems like it applies whether through injury or loss or simply being born with a part of your body missing or shaped irregularly as you face the world you are aware of a difference an absence and living with that is what makes it sacred on some level i think all elaine feel the echo of that pain within our sisters and brothers so that's the underlying foundation of soma oneros it's an acknowledgement you are seen i'm seen Exuberant nerd boys, almost always wearing glasses and a hat. And often riding a bicycle. My guess is, this is Hayao Miyazaki looking back on his young self and going, yeah. yep, that's me. This is his self-insert. I'm this yeah. little nerd. He's, it, these, these characters are usually vaguely supportive, yeah. where possible. They might be a bit clumsy. But they're and... also, yeah, they're a bit clumsy and sometimes when they try to do good things, it goes a bit pear-shaped. Mm. But they are There's also always a lot of well-intentioned. Inadvertent, these characters might be on the spectrum, but I'm not sure Miyazaki really knows how that, that is what he's saying. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm fairly certain he's on the spectrum somewhere. If, if he sees the world in this very specific way each mm. time, he does have a certain misanthropy and a certain mistrust of people, which he continuously tries to speak to the young to say, don't be like these careless people. Mm. Also, mum and dad are okay. In almost every instance, mum and yeah. dad are okay. In Spirited Away, it's like one of the few times where it's like, mum and dad are a couple of pigs. Yes, but and if they even, aren't when they start, they will be halfway through. Even then, he's kind of kind. There's no roll dull parents who are yeah. fucking awful. Indeed. Apart from maybe the aunt in Grave of the Fireflies, different director. Indeed. I mean, I, while I would not dream of trying to stick a label on anything that, that Miyazaki may... Uh, have going on. I will say this: he is an introvert. Mm -hmm. Clearly, he is uh, feels very comfortable and at home in a natural environment, mm -hmm. and he has a very significant special interest in machinery, with particular uh, relation to flying machinery. Yes, like he can lose himself in the machinery forever. Uh, there's also often an unutterably gentle and selfless paragon. Uh, Prince Ashitaka is a perfect example of this. Someone who is so squeaky clean, they would be labelled a Mary Sue by those boys if those boys ever watch these films, which they don't. There's also, in contrast, somebody selfish and foolish who's usually the de facto villain. It's yeah. always a discouraging, don't be like this person, they're an asshole. Look mm. at the damage they're doing. Although there is often also a bigger villain beyond that who is acting with malicious intent. The mm. selfish and foolish person is usually the immediate villain, but is you, you can tell they're not doing it because they are... They, they have greater aims. Mm. They, it's just klutziness and, and self-interest. This may be a hangover from his Lupin days because he uh, also contributed to the Lupin uh, TV show. We don't know anything about Lupin, so if we make a Lupin mistake, just, just tell us, but be gentle with us. Uh, thieves and pirates who turn out to be nice. Yes. There's a lot of like, oh my God, they're pirates, but they're helping the kids. Mm. Well, it's, it's specifically this sense of outlaws who are outlaws because the system is corrupt and fucked. 
they're like the lost boys in Peter Pan frequently. Mm. Yeah. They need a Wendy to help. You you pointed out that during is it Castle in the Sky? They needed a Wendy to tell them how to clean a Wendy and cook. Thing going on yeah. there. Yeah. There's also often a pushy man with a head like a potato and a wispy little mustache. This film is not about him, even if he thinks it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's also, you'll find, weird creatures with funny eyes and cute characters that we love who have round, open eyes that seem to break the fourth wall a little. Like, they're looking directly at us. Mm. They're often a little creepy, but in a kind of adorable way. They're frequently... Like Chicken Ponyo. I'm like, that's that should be a thing of nightmares. Frequently they are animals or children... And weirdly, here's what it makes me think Like of. Totoro and his little friends. Do you remember an episode of Quantum Leap yeah. where Al suddenly oh realised... Oh my God, what are we going on with this? Yeah, I know. Al suddenly realises that children, little children... Can, can see, see him. him, yeah. And the reason for this, like there's this whole sort of it's supposed to be a metaphor for him being an angel, but mm. for, but his, his explanation for this is that children can always see what's really there. Yeah. So it's almost like these these little characters who look out at us mm. are acknowledging that we are watching their world. I didn't put this in because it's almost too obvious, but a big thing that looks scary, but turns out to be really, really gentle and nice. Yes. Starts obviously with Totoro, but actually it predates that with the robot in A Castle in the Sky. And in fact, the, um, the giant bugs in uh, Nausicaa and then you've got uh, No Face in uh, Spirited Away. Like, we will find others as we go. This is one of the things Willow loves the most. Willow watched Ghibli films before Willow could talk. So uh, Kiki's Delivery Service was just on and on and on and on again. They loved it. They have a certain mindset whereby if a thing looks big and scary, but then it's gentle to especially a little girl, they love it with all their heart, and if anything happened to it, they would destroy everyone in this room and then themselves. <laughs> There's also, you will find, passionate, cheery, but non-pushy artists. This was something Willow picked up on as well. Yeah. The artist chick is a frequent mm. character. She's rarely the main character, although occasionally she is. She's frequently a big but, sister type. Yeah, but somebody who is calm creative mm -hmm. and supportive and expresses themselves through drawing or painting in some way. I've begun to realise we sound like M. Night Shyamalan's blatherings about comic books in Unbreakable. Like, this may be all obvious to everyone, but it's like, the villain will be twisted in some way. Yes, we know! <laughs> but, like, uh, we... This was really our proper first deep dive into... Studio Ghibli. Like, we've we've enjoyed the films over the years, but we've never really looked into the commonalities. Also, part of the point of our uh, director seasons is to observe the recurring patterns yeah, yeah. throughout director's work, which is exactly what we're doing here. Yeah. And, yeah, non-pushy artists tend to... They like to be outside in nature. They paint nature. The wind blows through their hair. They look absolutely their wonderful. Their paintings blow away. They get very they frustrated. Get, yeah. <laughs> uh, and But they, they seem to be tapped into a sense of purpose in life that people who aren't artists can kind of envy and go, but I'm not an artist. I wish I could be this passionate about anything. Yeah. But that what that seems to be suggesting is that that sense of creativity... And, and, and maybe it's just that there was a, a, a woman in charge of his animators who he really respected or something like that, that, that he was personifying in these characters. But they, 
they seem to have this sense of being able to recover from things not going well. And they are usually in some way connected with recovery. Mm. The wind rises. Yes. Kiki's delivery service. Even a little bit in... um, Whisper of the Heart with the boy who carves violins. That's the one, yeah. Part of a bigger violin. Yes, indeed. (laughs) But but yeah, this, this idea that your art is... It, it won't solve everything by any means, but it will give you the rope that will help you get back up again if you get knocked down. Mm. We talked about the the burnout that Kiki suffers from in the Kiki show and how it's the artist girl who kind of says, stop working for a bit. Mm. Just come hang out with me. We'll, uh, uh, effectively, I will nourish you and you can nourish yourself on different levels to what you've been starving. Absolutely. And this goes back to that idea of if your basic needs are being met and you don't have to worry about feeding yourself, mm. then you can concentrate on recovering those next level needs. A pervasive tone of melancholy and yearning. Occasionally you'll get a film which is jaunty that goes... But even that will eventually fall to (sighs) the world is not as it should be and I wish it was like this there is an element of that but I think it is also tied up with an acknowledgement that the human condition is about change and striving and that ultimately if you take that away and give us a perfect environment we are in fact no longer human If everything is in a way that we go, okay, that's it, just pause it, stop it right there, I don't want anything to change ever, then we will start towards the deterioration that pushes us into being that villain who's trying to hold the strings of everything. This, I think, also stems from Miyazaki's own push-pull when it comes to cynicism. It creeps in and he tries to keep it at bay Mm. so that he can convey hope and a sense of oneness with the world through his work, he uses the work to stave off that cynicism. Yeah, I wonder actually if One his repeated... Well, indeed. If his repeated attempts to retire are part of being afraid of becoming that villain because everybody mm. keeps giving him the strings back but saying, every t- you deal. But every time he retires... Come on Here we go again Motherfucker, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on down and see the idiot right here. Too fucked to beg and not afraid to care. What's the matter with calamity anyway? Right, get the fuck out of my face. Understand I can't feel anything. It isn't like I want to sift through the decay. I feel like a wound, like I got a fucking gun against my head. You live when I'm dead. People equal shit People equal shit People equal shit People equal shit Come on! Hello cynicism, my old friend. It comes creeping in the door and he's like, Fuck, I've got to go back and work. Mm. Just, to, just to keep it at bay for a little bit longer. Then I might just die happy. Yeah. Which this is, is the, the best we could... I would love it if Miyazaki died happy. Because... It seems like he has been working and working and working to stave off a neurosis and an anxiety, yeah. and I don't want him to die feeling worried. If I think there is an element of artists, artists don't retire, because 
You don't stop your, being creative. Your work is such an inherent part of who you are. You just get so tired you can't you just, anymore. Yeah, you, you get to the point where you've, you've, you might have completed everything that you wanted to complete, but you, you've still got to find something because you have a creative nature. Even if you don't sell it, even if it's not about work to live. Some of us, like Michael Jordan, seek further challenges in baseball. Some of us become authority figure number one in transphobia when they should be writing books about wizards. You can tell people to read the Daily Mail because they precede what they're going to say with the phrase, well, the thing that frightens me. You go, oh, God, no. The thing that frightens me is within four years we should all be speaking Muslim. You may laugh, Marcus, but they eat swans. Oh, God. Anyway, great big fat tears. Oh, yes. I don't think I've seen this in any other film that wasn't thus doing Ghibli. But when people cry, it's ugly crying. It's like, their faces twist up. (laughs) Their faces twist up, and the tears that come out of their eyes are the size of fucking pennies. It is ridiculously noticeable in Arietti because she is tiny, Mm. but her tears are like full-size tears. Oh, I'm crying again. Ah! It's like a giant (laughs) beach ball comes out of your face. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Oh, again, almost every film has a scene where usually the heroine breaks down. It's it's the reverse of the I Want song, or it's often the associated with the sort of the deepest pit of of like, this is all gone horribly wrong. And those fat tears will just start streaming. They're often, it's a strange color mix because it's not clear. It's kind of gray and cloudy, but sometimes they're tinged with blue or even turquoise. Mm. Uh, But it never seems like, like if you get the color wrong, it looks like some disgusting viscous chemical is oozing out of their head. You have to be careful with it. So it's it's always animated to, to, to definitely feel like you're focusing on the emotional outburst at that point. Yeah, I would say this is this is a parallel to that scene where she's running and she falls and she gets back mm. up again. The the crying is the emotions and the situation and the frustration have just got too much. So she sits down or, or you know collapses and and has a cry and that is like a reset. From the sounds of it, Ichiro Oda, the creator of One Piece, may have taken a leaf out of this book because his his mangas are specifically characterized by when his pirates go through emotional extremes, their faces become twisted and snotty and, and, and you really feel what they're feeling. No, don't ask us to do One Piece. It's a million pieces, folks. But I will at least acknowledge <laughs> the that. The title is misleading. It's so popular. It's the name and, of the treasure. Right, okay. One of my favourite ASMR artists mm-hmm. has a type of video where she reads One Piece. Mm, okay. <laughs> and then he cried. And I have a feeling it will go on forever. Yes. Okay. Here's one. Japanese people only, with the exception of later, later films, Marnie and the Red Turtle, pretty much every character in every Ghibli film is characterized as being Japanese only. In some cases, they are Japanese people, clearly, in an Italian setting or uh, in, in Stockholm. And if you contrast that with Disney, for better or worse, 
in their animated canon alone have gone to Italy, Mexico, Peru, England many times, India, the Middle East, France many times, Africa many times, ancient Greece, ancient China, Hawaii, Canada, Norway, the Pacific Islands, South Asia, and Colombia. Ghibli even made Stockholm in Sweden like an idealized Japan. They also don't go for the anime, this person has blue hair to differentiate them. Mm. I this mean, is obviously dodgier ground. Yeah, I, I have no information that would allow me to comment intelligently on on either way mm. on this. It could be that Miyazaki is is focused on what's his immediate vicinity in terms of of what he understands and wants to portray, but I don't know that. Ghibli films are not known for being globetrotting. They take place in either Japan or a very Japan-style mythical realm. Mm. And they often, like you say, they will take different geographical locations mm. and then bring them here. Though, interestingly, there's a very little in the way of, like, feudal Japan, pagodas, samurai, ninjas, all of the sort of stuff that, uh, that America... that stereotypical Japanese shit. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's, there's no, like, shoguns and daimyo and, and, and all of the stuff that the warring feudal clans and the... The Sengoku Jedi, the Edo period. That those eras which contributed so heavily towards Japanese history mm. is mostly absent from Ghibli. I feel like Princess Kaguya is the, one of the only times they actually venture in there. And again, that's Takahata. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the you can look at the fact that the adaptations that he's worked on are often from non-Japanese material. Oh, yeah, I completely forgot. There's so many quaint little English books that get adapted into Ghibli films. Like They are charming to, the, to these folks, and they go, let's do our version of this. Yeah. But, I, I mean, from that perspective, it could well be that what we're seeing is, in fact, not Japan and Japanese people at all. What it is is some idealised fusion mm. of a pastoral England or pastoral Britain, because I think Mary in the Witch's Castle has Flower. Scottish overtones. Sorry, Mary in the Witch's Flower has Scottish overtones to it. Um, but the... It's not dissimilar from Aladdin being incredibly fucking American. <laughs> yes, yeah. But yeah, what I mean is... He was modelled on Tom Cruise, for goodness sake. It's, it's a fusion of what seems to us to be this sort of idealised Japan, but I think the cultural elements do come into it. Mm. It's just that we don't necessarily see them because they are very familiar to us, yeah. because they are European and Scandinavian. Yeah, but there is... For example, if you take Mulan, Moana, and uh, the Jungle Book, there is a very distinct differentiation mm. in what the people look like in these places. Yeah, so essentially what we're coming down here to is skin tone. Also phenotypes. Mm. But, but that's what I mean. There's a, there's a lack of diversity, or there appears to be a lack of diversity in uh, physical perceptions of ethnicity. Yeah. Okay. And before I start seeing deep fakes of me at clan rallies, consistently seeing the world through the filter of Ghibli's Japan is not a criticism. It's a commonality. If the next Ghibli film was all about Anansi, the African spider god, we'd all be surprised. I mean, now I say that, I want that. God damn it. <laughs> Thank you.
cosy, cluttered cottage core. Yes. This was cottage core before cottage core became cottage a thing. Core was a thing, yeah. Uh, or rather, it was. It's just that people in Edwardian times who lived in the country didn't call it cottage core. Yeah. Well, this is what I mean about the idealised England. That's yeah. where cottage core comes from. Yeah. I think no, no more perfect example of this than uh, Arietti, where because the clutter is absolutely massive, it's the whole world for these characters, and they've made their own clutter on a micro scale. Yeah. There's, there's also, there's a thing about cottagecore which has been picked up on previously, which is that the image of that lifestyle is something that's only really achievable by the very wealthy mm -hmm. or the very poor. Like, like, if you have no choice other than to live in a shed at the bottom of a field... <laughs> I'm kept in... Then you can have cottage core. I am living in the shed of a rich person who keeps me here for fun. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that actually happened, folks, mm -hmm. in the yes. Victorian era. Oh, God. Anyway, uh, but yeah, you'll, you'll get houses where you're like, oh, my goodness, I would love to stay there and just have a holiday. Mm. Yeah, but then there's this sort of... It's a hobbit hole. Because what you don't see is the how many servants are necessary to preserve that atmosphere. Like, all right, this is probably a bad example because it is actually addressed in that, but in Marnie Was Here, mm -hmm. that house without servants... Oh, that's not cottage core. <laughs> I'm talking about the artist Ursula in um, yes. Kiki's Delivery Yeah, service. she lives in a shed in the forest. Yes, and it's a wonderful, charming it. shed. Absolutely. It's her shed. Yeah. It's not perfect, but it's mine. Indeed. The precious... She falls under the very poor end of the scale. Yeah. Piss poor artist. Like, yeah. uh, do you have any pancakes? I'll take the burnt ones. Um, <laughs> the precious fragility of nature under threat from callous modern waste. We've kind of covered this, but we'll be going back to it throughout as we talk about yeah. each film. I, I, I think this is something which it's is It's waste. Not... Like, when you look at the dumping, it's yeah. always like, look at this shit! He's from Miyazaki pointing to pollution in a river and why is there a bicycle in here? Yeah. You should be riding that bicycle. It should have propellers. <laughs> but I do think that there is a sense of... It, it's not exactly critique of capitalism, at least not in so many words. In the same way that Grave of the Fireflies is not it's exactly not a, a critique, critique of, of war. war. <laughs> I don't know, it's dude. You're peripheral. saying it with every word that you comes really out of your are. mouth. Yeah, no, it's, it's there. <laughs> No, 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 I didn't mean it to say that. Didn't you now? It's the waste. Looks over the top of glasses. It's the waste that stems from the Industrial Revolution yeah. overproducing things that are single use only or are eventually surplus to requirement and just there's no place for them, so they end up cluttering nature. Absolutely. And in the this, opposite way of cottagecore. And in terms of what that does to the people, again, it is the opposite of this sense of if you have your basic needs provided. Under capitalism, there is so much plenty, it's in... It collects in very specific areas, but there is enough to make sure that nobody in the world has to starve. Yeah. It is not a question of resource. It is a question of distribution. And there is no um, explicit intonation of communism in these films that I can pick up on. Maybe I'm missing something significant, but I... I was not getting that. There's very there little is... in terms of political ideation. It's always find the harmony. Yeah, but but that in and of itself is a subtle socialism. Mm. It is a sense of if there are people in need, you should help them. 
that should not be a natural state of affairs. That there subtle are socialism is our Alexi Sale cover band. Oh, indeed. Um, <laughs> Um, the, 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 the idea that people are there to be used in order to make the industry go forward is only ever presented as a negative yeah. and something that needs to be tackled. Okay. Do you remember Secret of Kells by Cartoon Saloon? Vaguely, yes. We have it. Yes, we, we have that box set. I, I remember that. Oh, I definitely set. remember that it exists. Yeah. The content I remember. Okay. Vaguely. 2009 Cartoon Saloon started. It's 2023. They're still working. They're still somehow... F- Staying afloat, French-Irish collaborations which never make any money but make these wonderful little films. They've retained their animation style in a similar way to the way Leica, who began with Coraline the same year, 2009, have retained their style. Aside from a handful of brief divergences into a different animation style, specifically My Neighbours the Yamadas and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, both of which, once again are from Hayo's mate Takahata, but also The Red Turtle and Earwig and the Witch, the Ghibli films retain the same style since Castle in the Sky in 1986 and indeed Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind before it. This would be akin to Disney maintaining the animation style of The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin today with Chicken Little Meet the Robinsons and Bolt being brief Earwig and the Witch style diversions. Disney maintain in the style of what is most financially popular. That's why everything looks like Disney, including Fortnite. But specifically, Disney looks like a homogenous version of its competitors. As soon as everything started going 3D animation, when DreamWorks and Blue Sky Studios started getting in and making their own 3D animation, Disney kind of rose to meet that, found a great style with Tangled and Frozen, and just kind of stayed around there. The, uh, there's a slight stylization and adaptation of bodies in things like um, Wreck-It Ralph and Big Hero 6 and Moana, but if you saw... Like Encanto looks like it takes place in the same world as Frozen, which looks like it, which literally takes place apparently canonically because Rapunzel was at the wedding in uh, as in the same world as Tangled. Disney do not look now like they did in 1986, but Ghibli do, unless we're counting and the Witch, which was an anomaly that came out most recently. Yeah. But yeah, I, I noted Leica, Cartoon Saloon, and also Ardman, the uh, makers of Wallace and Gromit, have a specific style that they stick to. And I think one of the reasons Ghibli maintains its adulation in its audience, whether it makes money or loses money, is that they maintain that particular, like the, the aesthetics we've been talking about the whole way through in that hand-drawn style, there is a continuity to that. There is a sense of not permanence, but reliability, that when you watch a Ghibli film, you're going to get a certain amount of what we've mentioned above yeah. re-delivered to you. It, when you watch a Ghibli film, or at least for me, when I watch a Ghibli film, it is very difficult for me to go, that was made in such and such an era. Yeah. I vaguely know what order they were made in, yeah. but none of them date specifically to this decade or this year. Mm. If you watched Howl's Moving Castle and Laputa Castle in the Sky back to back, you'd go, well, this one looks a bit older, but not by a huge amount. The The style is... It's it's flashier and, and, and clearly more technical in Howl, but they have that 
adherence to each other. If, if Disney made a film that looked like Aladdin tomorrow, you'd go, you'd be flung backwards in time to when they looked like that. Okay. So, let's talk about the films, and we will actually start with Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. Lupin. I've heard it as Lupin repeatedly throughout uh, YouTube. I'm going to say Lupin and Lupin. I'm going to be wrong either way, but to half the people, I'm right half the time. All right, so I'm reading it as being written the same way as The Plant, which is pronounced Lupin. Let's just call it Lupin. Fuck it. But maybe it's pronounced Lupin in Japanese. Or French, which is... Hmm. It feels like a French comic, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Okay. So Lupin is kind of like the French James Bond, but he's a scallywag and a thief. And if you've ever watched Cowboy Bebop, and you should if you haven't, not going to be an overly exuberant anime fan saying, you've got to see this, ultimately see whatever you like. But Cowboy Bebop is a seminal work and very clearly inspired by Lupin and the ne'er-do-wells that uh, this thief hangs around with. Yes. Specifically, if you look at uh, his long, gangly, inner suit, hands in pockets, walking just like Spike Spiegel, it has that kind of jaunty, ostentatious gentleman thief thing going on. Indeed. Uh, and Castle of Cagliostro is like the training wheels for Miyazaki. If you look at the, the the TV, the difference between the animation, it's a huge jump up, and the way that the backgrounds scroll into view, and they, they, they do that sort of, almost like parallax scrolling in a video game, where they look at this beautiful painted thing that's now coming into focus. And there's a sense of motion. Everything feels like a heist, and you're sort of along for the ride, holding on by one finger as everything hurtles around the side of a cliff. It's incredibly energetic for a film made in the late 70s. Definitely worth tracking down a worthy honorary Studio Ghibli film. And it's also definitely worth seeing in conjunction with Lupin III, The First, which was a really recent, like 2019, CG animated Japanese film, uh, which takes the same characters and renders them in a style, I mean, not a million miles off of uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines. You getting that? Mm. Just, uh, it's not Spider-Verse, but it's the Japanese version of that, as in movement is very stylized and it's it's again got that sense of 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 uh, rascally joy to it and there's a a real energy the director of that film takashi yamazaki is my new favorite anime director after hayao miyazaki the modern day even though he's been working for a long time superstar director that i am going to be watching from now on he directed the two Doraemon films that are both on Netflix and are CG, but he also directed Dragon Quest Your Story, which we also saw this year and is one of our favourite films of the year for reasons we'll probably go into at some point. There's no room for it now. But either way, Takashi Yamazaki, for his ability to make anime with 3D models, is really one to watch. And for your more traditional hand-drawn animation, Mamoru Hosoda has captured our hearts. We'll be talking about both of these and their works in the future. Now, as we go along with these films, we've got to 
talk about what happens in them on a dramatic level. Otherwise, we'll be saying, well, this film is nice. This is nice. Don't want to spoil it for you. And this next one, well, it's very nice. We, we, we've got to differentiate them. We have to talk about things that happen. But I don't consider these spoilers. I consider them things to watch out for and ways to watch the film. Because if we're giving you angles to approach them with, and it, not so much work to do, but fresh eyes to look upon them, that's not spoiling the film at all. That's opening up the film like a box of treasure, and it's only going to be one way of doing it. There's going to be plenty of people out there who can give you other things to say about the We are by no means Ghibli experts. It's, this is just our findings after watching all of them back to back. So, to talk briefly about what happens in Lupin, it feels very much like Hayao is being given toys that are someone else's to play with, and he wants to do something with them for his last kind of, okay, I'm just going to set this character down, and then other directors can pick him up and do other things with him. He shoots Lupin about two-thirds of the way through in a scene that's like, oh my god, the guards are shooting, oh my god, and he's like scrabbling away, and it's very kind of Trigun. There's a lot of Lupin mm. in Trigun as well. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Vash the Stampede in particular is kind of this uh, lovable buffoon who gets sort of stuck in all kinds of uh, bad situations. Yeah. Somebody who has this ridiculously elevated reputation, but it's not entire cle entirely clear why, because every time we see them, they're making a mess of things. But we're seeing the, this character scrabble around in a way that they've always done in a great fun uh, action sequence. And then he gets shot, and it's not like the whole film stops dead like it would in a modern day, uh, say, a J.J. Abrams blockbuster for, say, Han Solo. But it is a case of this shit just suddenly got real. Things do not go according to plan, and he winds up dreadfully wounded and reflecting on why he's been trying to save this girl who he's been trying to liberate the whole way through the film. As it turns out, she saved his life when she was much younger, so he feels indebted to her. And now he's hovering on the brink of death and it gives him pause for thought. This is an unusual and dramatic turn for Lupin and it thus makes this a landmark film in his series. So when you're watching, be aware that the first two acts will be carefree and then the third act is much more of a Miyazaki turn. Suddenly it's, there's actual stakes here. One thousand years from now, the time for hope is running out as the forces of evil are everywhere. Warring nations close in from the south, and those from the dead world come haunting from the north. Soon, both will invade the only place where the wind still blows and the air is still pure. Here, a spirited young princess has dedicated herself to creating a world of peace. She is Zandra, friend of the earth heir to the throne of zeal, destiny's child. Embraced by all who serve her, overwhelming all who defy her. She and all who follow her are warriors of the wind. No 
motion picture has ever revealed such a future of creatures and creations of the phantasmagorical and the fantastic of the unexpected nobody expects the spanish inquisition and the unforgettable Must have forgot that part. And of one incredible heroine who challenged all those who dared to destroy our tomorrows. Here is the adventure, the spectacle, the legend that will live in your memory beyond time and for all time. Warriors of the Wind. Man, that is flagrant false advertising. His next film was Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind in 1984. And this thing is a masterpiece straight out the gate. Its themes get revisited strongly with more of an overt message in Princess Mononoke. Uh, and it's, it's rich and dense and very much keyed in with our relationship with the world. And it presents us with a world where that has broken down rather substantially. Yes, yeah. There's a, an essence of what I want to say is connected to Shinto, but does not exclusively use the imagery of Shinto to get it across. And that is the feeling that everything in the planet is connected in some way. Mm -hmm. And how we behave towards those connections is important and says a lot about who we are as people. I watched a piece on the history of anime which went year by year throughout the 20th century working its way up and showed how the absolute earliest most basic animations began from Nippon and it was curious to see them go through the same period in the 1930s where everything looked like Cuphead and uh, that's probably the best uh, cultural touchstone right now to say to, to, to uh, you know Cuphead? That. That kind of stuff in the 30s. The, the Steamboat Willie era. Popeye and that, that everyone had big rubbery arms which spun around and things like that. But um, as it progressed I was watching as the 30s went by and the early 40s happened and it dropped into the equivalent of the Disney's uh, De Fuhrer's face and uh, you know Road to Victory and Donald Duck will help our troops to da 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 smack Mr. Hitler war propaganda and uh, the anime they chose was uh, was kind of a we will succeed and, and fly into our bright future and Japan uh, we, you know will dominate and then the next year was the year of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it went... Kittens. Who likes kittens? Who likes these cute little kittens? And then the next year after that, kittens. Kittens and little little dogs, they're, they're being very, like... There was absolutely no attempt to acknowledge the horror that had been visited upon their country. It took decades for the atomic bomb to work its way into anime and when it did in the mid to late 80s in things like Akira and indeed Nausicaa you've got you've got a terrible war happened a long time ago and it's exemplified through these giants but 
it's confronting the fact that there's this terrible thing in our past that we haven't been able to talk about or confront. Gojira happened in 1954, less than a decade after this atrocity. And it feels like anime would have been the place to actually explore this, but it was they were keeping it very much this is for children and you know even throughout the 70s there was uh, there was an experiment like a, there's a, like a Cleopatra what appears to be a kind of erotic film they only showed a few pencil sketches from that in this to keep it safe for YouTube but um, by and large it was like as it approached the end of the 70s like little kids running around the place and going on adventures what looked like Dogtanyan clearly inspired Dogtanyan was, was Puss in Boots in the 80s you had people who were children when uh, Hiroshima happened, or even weren't born yet, turning around, looking at Japan, looking at the cultural impact that this had, and actually finally putting it on screen for them to confront. As opposed to in America, when 9-11 happened, it was like immediately afterwards. It was a year or so of, what do we do films about? Because they were all films being produced be before this horrendous thing and then afterwards it was how about you uh, come watch our film about skyscrapers falling down in a city there's a big war going on robots though robots or maybe an earthquake uh, but it was relatively instantaneous it took a long time and Nausicaa feels like a film that deliberately sets itself in the aftermath of a worst case scenario regarding not even nuclear weapons but weapons of such destructive capability that they destroyed nature creating this desert and the sea of decay which in the film is easy you it is easy to miss the fact that decay is signaled as part of the life cycle and that it's actually kind of a to come back from this horrendous moment of destruction we need to go through the decay and renewal stage yes and i think that is particularly important in this context because sometimes although art and creativity are part of how the human race processes stuff but sometimes an occurrence is so huge that it takes a long, long time before you can detach from it sufficiently. And when I say you, I'm talking the collective you here. This is, it's, sometimes it is almost impossible for an individual to detach from the hugeness of these events. Frequently it is impossible for an individual to detach from them, but collectively to get it, enough distance between you and the thing that you can observe it enough to put it into art so that you can process it. Mm. But also, it's worth thinking about what the purpose of that processing is, because sometimes when it's something that's like, let's call it small T trauma, it's about how do I heal this? How do I analyze what broke? what needs fixing, what steps I need to take, and again, I'm talking collectively here, to repair the damage that was done during this event. Sometimes the massiveness of it means there is no healing. There is no repair. There is no way to fix what was done. 
So the only thing that you can do is, okay, what do we do now? What do we do to rebuild? How do we come back and create what will inevitably be a new life and a new culture? Because it can't go back to being what it was before. It is not humanly possible to recover what existed before that moment happened. And going through, exactly as you said, going through that phase of decay and, uh, decay and renewal and something new growing from that is, is all that can be done. And is in fact, when you can get enough distance from it to look at the planet as a whole, is the natural course of things. This is not me saying that these massive traumatic events are natural in no way, shape or form, but the recovery from it is about something is destroyed, you have to give it chance to let it sleep and recover and, and be reborn, rather than desperately trying to glue everything back together. Honestly, I think a lot of how uh, American movie culture dealt with 9-11 was desperately trying to glue it back together. Well, superheroes who can intervene and prevent disaster. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that has necessarily resulted in a, a processing of what occurred. The closest is Endgame, and specifically the beginning of Endgame, wherein the worst happened and Tony Stark can barely cope with it. You know, that's, that's what we're supposed to be, right? The Avengers, not the Prevengers, not the Protectors. We were there, we tried to stop it happening, but it happened anyway. At that point, they are the firemen going in after 9-11 and there's, they can't bring the building back. Yeah, but you look at the fact that when we, when we take this back out to a, a kind of a meta level of how that's being constructed, Marvel don't know how to come back from that. They are diddling around in the shallows at the moment, not really knowing how they progress from this moment that they created and can't go back to the before times of. Folks, have you been diddled by Marvel? <laughs> right in. <laughs> <clears throat> the Paragon is very much Nausicaa here. Mm. She is a really good-hearted young woman who is prepared to undergo pain in order to help heal. It's exemplified by a point where she uh, meets uh, the, the chicken man who's uh, walking across the desert and uh, uh, borrows from him this squirrel cat thing? Squirrel fox. Squirrel fox. And the fox is sitting on her shoulder and afraid and she holds up her hand and it bites into her finger and she says quietly and gently, it's okay, you're afraid. And it's hurting her and she's bleeding, but she holds her finger there and then eventually it stops and licks her apologetically in a kind of, you didn't kill me as a result of me doing this. Okay, I trust you now. It's a very straightforward sequence, but it presents the kids with an ideal person to try to be like. Yeah, it, it's... This is the kind of person who, by the way, Ray was very deliberately evoking at the beginning of... Um, uh, Force Awakens, but enraged modern audiences are like, how dare she be this good at everything from the get-go? She's got no personality. It, yeah, you're right. Ray has no personality. This, this she doesn't moment, get anything wrong, ever. This moment is an extension of 
the removing the thorn from the animal's paw. Yeah. The idea that there is. Or in this case, it's taking it out and shoving it in yourself and saying, "It's okay, I'll take well, your pain." No, no, no. But what I mean is, this is this is a metaphorical thorn. It's the fear yeah. that the squirrel fox is feeling. Yeah. She allows it to express that in a way that is contained and safe. She knows that ultimately it might hurt, but this tiny little thing can't really harm her. Yeah. What Norsica represents is this there's an innocence to it but it's not naive it's an energy that it's is idealizing yeah rather than there's, naive. there's an energy that is often presented in art through the young it repels cynicism yeah through somebody who doesn't have this nostalgia we've got to go back to the way things were before we have to fight to keep our, our way of life from being re because she has no real investment in what there was before she wasn't born yet <laughs> she can only look forward and that is is really sort of this bright spot that is ultimately shown to be sacrificial but resurrecting <laughs> Miyazaki went out of his way with the bugs in this. The humans are at war with the bugs, they hate them. It's kind of Starship Troopers. But Starship Troopers is the version of this done by fascists. But this is the thing. Which is, by the way, what Paul Verhoeven was attempting to convey. Hey, America, you might want to watch this a little bit. Just be careful. And then there are articles in the New Yorker going, ah, it seems like it's a fascist film. Wow, you don't say. <laughs> This, I think, is, is one of the earliest manifestations of this, the world of nature. Because yeah. even though this does not have that lush greenery that would come to be a hallmark of, of Ghibli films, mm. and Miyazaki films specifically. It's yearning for it's, that greenery. It is, and it does take opportunities to present the beauty of nature where possible. The way the fungi come to life and the way they light up and they have this bioluminescence that makes them incredibly beautiful, even though fundamentally most people still view them as something that's poisonous and dangerous. The bugs, the humans are at war with the bugs, but the bugs are not at war with the humans. They are just doing their thing. If they were left alone, they would not necessarily pose a threat. Like in Starship Troopers. En masse, <laughs> yes, when they're migrating, it's like, well, if we don't get out of their way, they are going to crush us. But ultimately, they're not trying to crush you. Mm. If you weren't there, they wouldn't detour in order to crush you. I like the buffalo. The bugalo. Futurama did it. Miyazaki went out of his way. He had a decision as to what this force would be that the humans are throwing themselves against. And he went out of his way to not make it wolves or foxes or birds that were beautiful and majestic. He went out of his way to make gross, weird bugs that could not be anthropomorphized easily. Mm. What he was going for was to challenge that sense that humanity often clings to, what use is this thing to me? Either it provides me with something, or it provides me with delight because I'm looking at it, or it complements me by being humanistic and anthropomorphized and making me feel like there's part of me out there as well. Yeah. These bugs are deliberately alien and dislikable. As far as Hayao is concerned, we need to evolve to a place where we're not necessarily asking ourselves, why should we save nature if it's not doing anything for us? But simply, we should not interfere and we should not ravage the land 
for the sake of the land in general, whether it is of use or not. Yeah, and and also that we should be this this what we arrogantly refer to as humanity, that sense of compassion and, and the idea that you can make space in the world for something else to exist. Which, as I said, exists in golden retrievers. Absolutely. Like I said, calling it humanity is an arrogance, but that's the word we've got. Um, that that we, we need to develop our capacity to apply that to anything. Not that it has to be like, here's this, this, this little group of people who are my family, this little group of people who are my friends, this little group of people who are my city, my country. Those, eventually, the, what you're aiming for here, people, is that you need to be able to apply that to anything, no matter how far away from you it feels to be. To accept because, that we are all part of the same ecosystem, even if some parts of that ecosystem are direct dangerous to Absolutely, you. because what's important is what that does to you. And the the animals and the creatures that you, you mentioned before that were specifically avoided and, and were not the, the um, opposition are beings that we have incorporated into our mythology. Wolves and foxes became dogs yeah. and are now well, our in, in, in literal buddies sense, who live yes. in our houses. But also when you look at like mythology and, and the, uh, the imagery that we use in our old stories and fairy tales, those creatures are folded into that. Mm. I mean, I could be wrong, if someone knows of mythology and, and With fairy a giant tale bug? about bugs, then please tell me. But Del Toro closest... wants to know well, straight yeah, away. Absolutely, but the closest I, I believe can think. Hollow Knight. Well, yeah, there is that. Um, but, but it's that's more new kind of like allowing certain exactly, artists and creators to explore this weirdness. Reinterpretations, exactly. From a from a historical perspective, the closest I can think is maybe something like dragons, where we've taken mm. lizards and reptiles and made them something that we can incorporate into our myths. I do remember a picture book where they made kind of a medieval dynasty of insects, and it was like this artist just really wanted to do a big wasp as a herald, mm. and it. It was anthropomorphizing insects, but not in a cute way. It was incredibly detailed. And now I need to find that thing. I feel like Del Toro would love it. Mm. But, uh, I but yeah. maybe there's bits. I am the cockroach like, prince. Yeah, maybe there's something like Tom Thumb or Thumbelina where they ride a, an insect of some mm. description. But but I'm I'm not feeling like I can remember multiple examples of this. So like I said, it's hard to sell anyone, the shit beetle. It is. Uh, but, <laughs> Okay, all right, there we go. There's examples of it in Egyptian mythology. Okay. Oh, yeah, because they, they, they were like, why is this dung beetle... Oh, I see what his industriousness creates now. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So, yeah, all right, I was looking at that with a very... Uh, Western. Western-centric uh, viewpoint. But As we are prone to do. Please do, if you have other examples of that, let us know. Come yeah. and talk to us about them. The ultimate conflict in this is that humans are trying to destroy the bugs and they feel terrified and paranoid of uh, the sea of decay because the spores will kill you unless you're wearing a gas mask within a few minutes and there is a sense of the world has turned against us so the only way we can survive is to fight back all the time all the time and the dramatic point at the end of Nausicaa is this girl coming between these two warring factions and saying no stop don't. It's what Disney were blushingly groping for with Pocahontas. And she's quite prepared to sacrifice herself to de-escalate these conflicts.
I love how this piece at the end of the film starts with Handel's Sarabante, then moves on to Tchaikovsky's 1812, and then Joe Hisaishi just takes it to a place all of his own. I absolutely maintain he deserves a place alongside the classic composers. Just time enough to thank our top tier $15 patrons, and you can join this illustrious club. Get a little shout out every episode, and know that you help support us. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savart, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jorn Clawson, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Haya, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So we're actually going to call it there, folks. We're going to make this part one of at least two. It started out as two. It became eight. That's what we all have to look forward to coming throughout this year. And when we return, we will be talking about Laputa Castle in the Sky, the first actual Studio Ghibli film. In the meantime, I will leave you with some of the astonishing music of Joe Hisaishi. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. This is an extensive, glorious, nine-minute suite. Strap yourself in.